for like two weeks, I was the number one producer <laughs> in Billboard magazine. What? Just what? Just, just because I was the producer of Time for Me to Fly, and it be, so it's like, all right, you know. Did you get a Grammy? Did you uh, get a you Grammy? You know, I should have gotten something, you know. And let's say the producer of the year is Kevin Cronin. <laughs> what? Kevin Cronin is the lead singer of REO Speedwagon and is credited with writing and co-writing music of the band's discography and several of their hit singles, which have sold more than 40 million records worldwide. That's pretty damn good. He's also a great guitarist and pianist. But did you know he started as a struggling actor in Hollywood, appearing in small roles in TV shows and movies before joining REO Speedwagon? Now, this is all starting to make sense to me because I recently got to perform with Kevin a few times. And wow, I mean, he is one of the greatest lead singers that I've ever worked with that can seriously entertain and command an audience's attention with love and respect. Now, to be really, really successful in any business, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about we, the team or in this case, the band. Teams win Super Bowls and World Series, not individuals. Kevin is the ultimate team player. He makes you want to be on his team or in his band. He makes the musicians on stage and the audiences love him because he cares. All right, please welcome my friend and amazing person, musician Kevin Ronan. Kenny, how are you, man? I'm good, man. Performing with you was more amazing than, than I expected. Wow. I mean, you just are so big at what you do. I thought where you were going with the intro was that I started out as a closet drummer because that's, that's what I wanted to be. That's why I'm totally jealous of you all the time. But you know what? I also believe that it helps you no matter what instrument you play, especially if you're in a rock band, you got to know the drums. You got to be able to sit down behind the kit and do something, you know what I mean? J just to kind of give the drummer something you know, every once in a while, just to point him in the right direction, you know? So it, it just helps. It helps to know how to play the drums. And man, the first time I sat down at, the, at a drum set, I was just like, wait, I can do this. And I never took lessons, but I could do it enough that it was, it felt good, man. So wait, so now my acting career, now, now I didn't realize that, uh, that my former life as a porn star was was uh, was <laughs> common knowledge. This is this is breaking news here, Kenny. I do research. I did my research. I, I and guess I'm, so. I, I I promised I wasn't going to tell everybody where they could get those, you know, porn uh, flicks. But I've just let it. I let it out a little bit. You did your research. Yes, I get. I get it. Hey, by the way, with the drumming thing, you know what blows me away about the great musicians, no matter what what instrument or, you know, if they're singers or not, is the people who are really badass have amazing time, amazing tempo, and amazing feel. And you're right. I think being able to be coordinated and to have good time, however you learn that, in one way is on the drum set because drummers have to keep time. I think it's beneficial for everybody to be able to play drums a little bit to just to develop their time and feel. Yeah, just a little. I mean, you need a real drummer to actually play the drums in your band or in your session, but to be able to just get around on them a little bit, to understand them a little so you can communicate with the drummer. Because that's, I mean, you know, the singer and the drummer, man, 
especially if the singer is the songwriter, it all comes from the drums. If the drummer isn't playing what the song wants to have on it, it's not going to work. So that's, to me, that's where it always starts. It, it always starts with the song. First place I go, you know, and plus I'm a rhythm player. You know, I, I don't know how to play guitar solos, but I can get around pretty well just playing the drums on a guitar, you know, just, uh, you know, I said this in another interview, but the hi-hat and the snare drum is rhythm guitar. You know, you're playing eighth notes and accenting on to do do ga do 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 gaga, and the hi hat and snare is do do da. When those are locked in, the band is locked in. That is just absolutely essential to me. A great rhythm guitar player. Well, I tell you what, I'm sure you've heard the Dave Matthews Band live. We did a gig with them, a, a festival show, and so, so we we had just gotten finished, and they were coming on. I had never seen them before. I'd heard their records and everything, and you know they're huge, but. When you see that band live, I mean, it's like you think you know the Dave Matthews Band if you've heard their records on the radio, whatever. To see them in concert, man, you talk about a drummer and a rhythm guitar player that are freaking, they're a freight train by themselves. And then, of course, the rest of the band is like just as freaking good. It, I mean, it blew me away. It was stupid good. But what you're talking about, that lock between the rhythm guitar and the drums, man, when you got that, you're you're happening yeah it's like a freight train i had the same experience with dave matthews yeah that was wow amazing so you know socrates said the key to happiness is to realize what your purpose in life is but then pursue it now you knew what your purpose in life was by the time you finished high school right i mean you knew you wanted to be a rock and roll musician in a rock and roll band am i right no dude i it was it was long before then i mean i feel like I was born at like the exact right moment for a person that wanted to play music. So I'd been taking guitar lessons for about two years, 12 years old, and tuned in the black and white TV, and you know where I'm going. And there it was, I want to hold your hand. And I just was like, my whole world just like opened up. It was like, I didn't even know what I was, why I was playing the guitar. I just, you know, it was like, on top of old Smokey and old Susanna and stuff like that. And well, the truth is I wanted to be a drummer, but my parents were like, that's going to be too freaking loud, you know? So, <laughs> so my dad's like, listen, you know, do guitar. He goes, you can take the guitar with you anywhere you go. You can bring it to parties. And I was like, you know what? Okay. That kind of sounds good. I like, I liked the idea of being able to take my instrument with me everywhere I went. So my dad was smart. All of a sudden, I saw the Beatles, and they're three guitars, man. They're all up front. The drummer's way back up high on a freaking six-foot riser. You know, their, their hair is flopping. I mean, they, and the songs were so good, and they sang and played. It was just like, that was it. It was, it was all over for me right then. I knew my purpose when I was 12 years old. Now, you know, so did 50 million other 12-year-olds who were watching the Ed Sullivan show that day. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I had the same experience. I mean, there, and there was nothing to watch on TV back then. So that was like, what? I mean, I asked my mom if I could join the Beatles. I wanted her to call them up and say, get me in the band. You know, uh, of course, that didn't happen. I asked, actually asked for a drum set, and that didn't happen at first either. <laughs> really? Well, yeah, parents didn't want their kids to be drummers, let's face it. So now you're a lead singer, obviously, guitarist, pianist, and a songwriter. So, like, when you write a song, what is your process? Where do you go to get your ideas from? And 
which instrument do you go to first when you write a song, or is it lyrics? Because I heard, <laughs> I heard you wrote lyrics to roll with the changes on the back of a trash bag or something like that. Yeah, actually, I have an artificial intelligence machine, and <laughs> that's that's all you need. So you know, <laughs> no, I I did write roll. It wasn't exactly trash. I, I pulled into a the band moved from Illinois to California during my little hiatus in the in the mid 70s right so when i rejoined the band i had to move to la but i didn't want to fly you know i'm a chicago boy at heart and if i'm going to move from chicago to la i wanted to feel the distance you know i wanted to i just wanted the rubber to meet the road so packed up a u-haul trailer i'm on my way and you know somewhere in new mexico i pulled into a to a truck stop and got a little bag of munchies, set it down next to me and got back in the car and I'm driving. And, and there was a woman involved too. So there was a lot happening, right? So I'm driving along and all of a sudden I've just found myself, you know, keeping time on the, on the steering wheel and I'm, you know, keep on rolling, keep on rolling. And, you know, next thing I knew, I was like, you know, that just opened the, the spigot, right? And all of a sudden, you know, lyrics start flying. And I'm like, I'm driving along. I got a U-Haul trailer behind me. I reached in the glove box, got a Sharpie. And the only thing I had to write on was that brown paper bag from the truck stop, you know, but now I'm steering with my knees, which is not good when you're pulling a trailer. So for greater highway safety and uh, better penmanship, I uh, pulled off to the shoulder. And, uh, but that's where the lyric was written right there, man. So when you ask about the process, the process is there is no process. The process is that you just, as a songwriter, you just got to be open and you got to be ready. And when those, what I call them holy moments, you know, when one of those holy moments strikes, you got to, to me, I just take it as far as I can. And then at some point you realize, okay, that's it. Then from that point forward, maybe the next day or whatever, then there's a, the crafting begins, you know, but I want to get as much as I possibly can in that moment where the music and the lyric and the melody and the, and the feeling, they're all just connected in a way that you just know, you know, there's no question. Oh, is, is this lyric right for this melody or are these, it's like, no, it all happened. So I trust that man. I, that's my religion right there. That's like magic, man. That's where the magic comes. You don't want to get in the way of magic because that's where flow is. And I guess guitar would be the first instrument if you want to do melody or you're you writing since that was your first instrument. You know how it is. You just, you know, I got guitars laying around all over the place and acoustics. And I, if I pick it up and if I, you know, I don't start playing songs, I just start playing the guitar. And if you sit there long enough, a song is going to come. And then you just got to, hope that there's something that you're feeling, you know, that kind of rises to the occasion of the music. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's just, you know, there's some chord changes and I record them and I've got, you know, 15,000 voice memos all over the place of little chord changes and melodies that nothing stuck with. And then some, once in a while, you just go, oh, here comes some words here comes a melody and okay now we got something yeah I, just some people i was talking to joe bonamassa the other day and he'll sit there and go like 
he'll just be hanging out and all of a sudden you'll see something come on TV or be watching a movie and there's a line and it's like, oh, that's good and writes it down. And then, it, you know, that's, that's the, the seed that starts the whole process. Yeah, I know songwriter Jimmy Peterick, my friend Jimmy Peterick's like that. He's Oh, I, Peterick, right. We go back to high school. Yeah, Chicago. 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 Yeah, the original Ides The Ides of March. Yes. Yeah. But, but I played with Jim. I played with Jim. Did you play with Jim? Oh, yeah, me too. So, so, but the Ides of March are known for vehicle, you know, but free vehicle, they had a song called You Wouldn't Listen, which was number one on WLS in Chicago when I think Jim was 15 or 16 when, when that. So he was. Like he was a major rock star. He's, I think he's a year older than me, but you know, in my mind, it was like, you know, he came to a, to an acoustic gig I played one time and it might as well have been Paul McCartney there. You know what I mean? I was just like, yeah. wow, Jim Peter, the eyes of artists here. Holy shit. You know, so, so we go way back, but that's how he is, man. He's got a notebooks and, you know, he, but he used to have like, you know, a Walkman on his belt and he would, he would like, you'd be walking through a, an airport and all of a sudden, you know, everyone's walking us and where's Jim? And he's like over on the side, you know, singing into his, into his Walkman, you know, but hey, you know, he's written a freaking thousand songs or a thousand, 10,000 songs. <laughs> you know the story about I'm your vehicle, baby, and the meaning behind that, right? Did he ever tell you that? Well, like, go ahead. Tell me, remind me. I think I know. My understanding is that he had a crush on this girl. You know, he wanted to, uh, you know, he wanted her to be his girlfriend. And he felt that all she used him for was his vehicle, his car to bring her to school and to bring her places. So he says, am I your vehicle, baby? And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that might be his wife. Yeah, that's Karen. He married this girl they had a crush on and he thought he was being used for his vehicle. <laughs> and at the time, he probably was. Let's face it, you know. <laughs> It worked out though, because he and Karen are together forever, and she's a she's a sweetheart. That's incredible. You love being in a band. I can tell, and you're a team player. You're a family guy. It's like the whole family thing. Last time I played with you, we were talking about your parents, especially your mom. They must have had like a huge impact as far as supporting you doing what you're doing, which always helps. Am I right? Yeah, my mom was definitely a a big influence, man. She was just one of these people that walked into the room and you knew she was there. She was larger than life. You know, she had a troubled childhood. So she was always kind of on, she was performing a lot in a lot of the time. And it was just to make people happy and make people laugh and to kind of, I think, get away from the, the craziness that she was dealing with at home. But to me, that just seemed normal. That was just like, that's how you, you be. You just like, you entertain people, you know? And I'll never forget, man. I was my first memory of life. Check it out. Was I was about two years old, and my mom sat me up at my grandma Cronin's. She had a little baby grand piano in her apartment. There wasn't room for any other furniture, basically, but she had this baby grand piano, and she sat me up there. And a couple of my aunts and uncles were there, and I just used to sit there at the piano and bang on the keys, but. I banged with some sort of feel, you know, just some sort of rhythmic thing. So these people actually thought that I was, that I knew how to play the piano, that I was some like prodigy musician, you know, I was just a kid beating on something, you know? So I've been beating on stuff ever since, man. Piano, guitar, timbales, whatever it is, man, I'll, I'll hit it. 
Was she a musician also, or uh, was she? She was into acting or dancer. Or... She was a kind of a Broadway musical. In fact, the my my earliest influences musically were all you know uh, South Pacific, West Side Story, all those. The thing about those uh, shows is the songs, you know, they were schmaltzy and they were kind of you know Broadway musically, but there was something about them. They were it must have sunk in because they had some structure and they had like memorable, you know, parts that you heard it and then you heard some other stuff and then the memorable thing came back and you're like, oh, you know, so I kind of got some sort of idea of song structures from those early Broadway show records. But that's what my mom was all about. She was just uh, singing and dancing her way through her troubles, you know. Well, it doesn't get any better than Leonard Bernstein, who did the, all the songs for West Side Story. One of the most beautiful ballads ever written was Maria, and it's based on a tritone. Maria! And the tritone is the most dissonant interval in all of music. And he writes this, the most beautiful melody on the most, I mean, he, that's brilliant. I mean, yeah, what's there not to learn from him? Yeah, I mean, that song al alone, I mean, is, yeah, it's a pop masterpiece is what it is. It just happened to be in a Broadway show because that was, that was where music was being played. You know, I've worked with a lot of musicians, and, and, uh, and I have to say, you are such a joy to work with because you're so upbeat. Maybe you got that from your mom, and you, you really know how to, as soon as you get on stage, or even off stage, you know how to connect with people, and you know how to communicate with people. And you make them feel good, you're positive, you're happy, you're upbeat, you're fun, you're funny. And you welcome everybody on stage and in the audience. And this motivates, it motivates me, and it motivates the other musicians, and it motivates the audiences to collaborate with you. They want to be involved with you. And I think that's very huge about being a team player and in a band. Now, is this something you do consciously or are you just born that way? I swear to God, Kenny, it's all about that. My basic feeling is that I have no business being up in the same room as you know, when I'm with you or, you know, the, the band that were. As a matter of fact, I think I think I'm kind of I'm not exactly in the band. So I just feel so lucky, you know, because I walk in with a song. I need great players. I mean, when I, I mean, I just having great players there to just and when I see someone like you or Kenny Wayne or or Millsy, these all these great musicians up there that are just kind of getting off on playing this little song I wrote. That's that's like the greatest feeling in the world. But I'll tell you, you make people feel the same way. Everybody just everybody says that about that's Kenny Aronoff. What you just described is you're you're the guy that same thing, man. You make everybody feel good. You're just upbeat. You're always in a good frame of mind, and and then you walk up there and destroy a drum set every time you play it it's freaking amazing so but it's true i mean you know we, we, we all it takes hey man i look at it like it's not just the musicians it's it's the crew it's the people you know setting up the chairs in the in the room it takes in order for for someone you know people are buying tickets man they're spending hard-earned money so when we all do our job right then those people get their money's worth, you know, and I'm talking about everybody. So it's just that I love every musician that I'm playing with because I, I can't do what they do. And I'm, I'm, I just have so much respect for people who really master 
an instrument, you know, or, or, or even the, you know, the singers that we have with the Ursae band, those, those women, I mean, they're just, it's just, it's pretty amazing. I, I feel so lucky. Yeah. We're, you and I are in a, in a super group now. So just to let you know, you're in, we're in the same band. So between your positive energy and mine, I think that'll be infectious to everybody. So they're not going to get rid of us. And if they do, we'll start a white, we'll start our own band, the White Stripes, you know? Nice. Just you and me. Guitar right. and drummer. Guitar and drums. <laughs> we don't need the rest of those guys. No. <laughs> I mean, Kenny Wayne is pretty good, but I mean, you know, I think we can do without him, you know? <laughs> yeah, we can do it. Yeah. Just us, you know? Who are those old guys? Uh, I got to ask you, because probably everybody knows this, but I mean, where did the name Ario Speedwagon? I mean, where did that come from? Oh, look at the time, Kenny. I've got, there's somewhere I've got to be, but I'll be. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I'll do, I'll, I'll do it quick. So our band was formed in a dorm room at the University of Illinois by Alan Gratzer and Neil Doughty, both retired, living well. And uh, this is at the University of Illinois in Champaign. So uh, Neil walks into his history of transportation course. Now, he had one semester left before he graduated in electronical engineering, right? Walks in the room, sees on the chalkboard, Rio Speedwagon. They were going to take a little uh, lesson on the early automotive achievements in America. Saw Rio Speedwagon on the board. So it's as simple as that. But what makes it slightly cool is that if you read the advertisements for these, for these old Ario Speedwagon trucks, they said reliable, hardworking, long lasting. And I'm like, you know, that kind of turned out to be true. <laughs> Here we are 50 years later. That's brilliant because it has meaning. It's not just a cool name. That's, that's brilliant. I love that. What's weird is at first it was just because he wanted to, you know, back in the days of festivals, R-E-O, three capital letters showed up on the list of a hundred names of bands. Originally, just a, a dumbass name, but it turned out to be true, you know? Well, if you think about it, same with your buddies, sticks. I mean, it, it's like sticks. Bam. You go, you know, it's not a real complicated sticks. REO. And you guys played together. So that REO and sticks. Bam. Done. Marketing. You don't understand that partnership. It goes back to when I was in high school and my high school band. Well, we originally called us which I thought was a really cool name, just U.S., like us, you guys, the audience. And then I got outvoted and the band got called Fuchsia. But anyway, so Fuchsia is doing a battle of bands at my high school with a group from a, a different neighborhood about 10 miles away. But we had heard of them. They were called the TW4. And they were, you know, we, we were like, okay, these guys are good. But but they live way out in Roseland. You know, we're in Oak Lawn. We're, we're local boys. We got this in the bag. So they show up and, and we, we're seeing all these kind of people that we don't really recognize. And we're like, oh, shoot, these guys are a couple years older than us. Their friends have their driver's licenses. Oh, we're screwed. So anyway, play the gig. They win. Now, I believe there should be an asterisk after this win because rumor had it, they also, not only did they have, were they older than us, they also had way hotter girlfriends than us. So they sent their girlfriends into the crowd collecting the ticket stubs from everybody and these girls let's put it this way they stuffed more than their bras okay they, you know what i mean there was a, it was a little yeah so yeah. so and, and the but the main guy in the band was like i'd heard of 
that they had a good keyboard player lead singer. And, and so I watched their set and I'm like, ah, that guy's pretty good. And he was a couple of years older than me. Well, Dennis DeYoung. So Dennis and I go back to the early wow. days and we've that rivalry that started, <laughs> this is crazy, started, I was 15, he was probably 17, started in, in my little high school, went on forever, you know, and uh, it, it, Unreal. yeah, yeah, pretty funny. That's a great story. All right, so as you've reached the top of your echelon, your craft, your badass, you know, driving force, you know, what makes you, I can tell, you're still trying to always improve, you know, get most value out of your life. What is that driving force? I mean, you still want to do it, right? Yeah. Oh, man. I, you know, my son, Shane, I have twin boys, Josh and Shane. I'm a twin. That's right. You're a twin. I'm an identical twin. Yeah. Identical twin. I've heard that. Wait, is this really you or is this your brother? That's what I want to know. Well, my brother's a doctor. He wouldn't wear this shirt. Wait, okay. That's the key. Okay. <laughs> That's how we tell you guys apart by your fashion choices. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So my son, Shane, just graduated from college with a degree in vocal music. The kid, I mean, he's got his mother's good looks, thank God. He's got my father's deep blue eyes, and he's just a slender, and he's an amazing singer, natural musician. And his twin brother, Josh, is like the counterpart. Josh just gets down with the bass, man. He's got the groove, and, he, and he's got just solid time. He's like a like a freight train, like you say. And Josh is just a passionate songwriter. So together, you know how it is with twins. You know, each twin is a force in and of itself. But man, you put you put a pair of twins together. And if they love each other rather than not, you know, which happens with twins, I'm sure you know, if they're locked, forget about it, man. It's, it's unbelievable. But Shane's is saying to me, Dad, he goes, you've got to study with Jeffrey. This is his his vocal professor, right? He's like, he'll change your life. I'm like, yeah, right, Shane. I think I was 69 years old at the time. I'm like, eh, nothing, yeah, nothing's going to change my life that much, you know? And plus, I would have had to drive into LA to take a vocal lesson, right? I'm like, I don't know. I just don't see it. Then during the pandemic, I walk out into a, this little guest house area and here's Shane singing into his laptop. I'm like, all right, there goes the commute excuse, you know? But with kids, as a parent, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I would look at Shane and go, Shane, you may not understand what I'm trying to tell you here, but I love you and I got no ulterior motives except love for you. So at least listen to what I'm saying, right? So now here's Shane saying something to me that I don't quite understand, right? He's 20, 21 years old at the time. And I'm like, all right, this is my chance to show him the respect that I wanted him to show me. So that was the motivation for me starting to work with Jeffrey Allen to work on my voice, because honestly, my voice has always been a, not a sore spot, but it's always been a, a source of anxiety for me because the reason that I lost my gig in Ario Speedwagon was from losing my voice. And so I got post-traumatic stress from that, man, because it's like you lose your voice there's nothing you can do. You know, you, you just got to stop using it for a while. Long story short, Jeffrey has changed my life. I'm enjoying singing so much more. Still got a many miles to go, but I'm, but I'm starting, to, starting to get it, starting to feel more confidence as a singer. You know, I always like it 
better when I hear what I call real singers sing my songs. <laughs> my songs always sound better when someone else sings them. And, you no, know, they, no they, they do. And, no but, but I'm getting there. I'm getting there. No way, Kevin. Dude, you, you know, it's amazing because your songs are not exactly easy songs to sing. You write these songs with them. Melodies are way up there. So it's funny to hear you tell that story because, you know, to me, it's like, oh, my God, Kevin's like one of the greatest singers in the world. It just shows you how we are our worst critics. I'm very, very hard on myself. I'm very, very, I'm like a Navy SEAL of preparation. And I have to go through so many things to get up there to make it look easy. But I don't just walk up there and just, oh, my God, I just got off a 10-week tour of Joe Satriani. I mean, I'm practicing my butt off because we don't even do sound checks because his material is so diverse in tempos and technique. I don't take anything for granted. Yeah, no, I know you don't, Kenny. I've, I've seen you do make it so easy and you're so, you know, it's so effortless, but it's so powerful when you play the drums. Just so your your audience knows, you've been, you know, uh, Mount Rushmore of drummers for me since the John Mellencamp days. If I see a new band, first thing I'm looking at is the drummer. Because if, like I said, if, if the drummer in the band isn't making it, I'm sorry, I'm not interested. I'm, I'm moving on, you know, but you make it look so easy. And it, it looks like you just like sat down at the drums and heard the song for the first time. And boom, there you are, man, because you're so on it. And you're so your whole body is feeling it. And you can tell. But when we work together and people, I'm sure you've talked about the, the Jim Mercy gig where it's there's a, a band and you're the drummer. And then there's, you know, four or five lead singers that trot out there and you know with four or five songs apiece <laughs> and i see you back there with the charts and i knew in vegas i realized that i screwed you up a few times because i kind of changed some of the arrangements on the spot you know because i was just thinking it was just so much fun with all those soloists you know kenny wayne plays a solo but and i keep thinking what the other guitarist tom bukovac tom brilliant that guy, I mean, it's like between him and Kenny Wayne Shepherd, it's like one of them is going to play a solo. I want to hear what the other guy's going to do because how do you, you know, they're, it's amazing. Yeah, but you were so cool. Then you went, hey, you fiddle player, you do a solo. And then, hey, and then they had Buddy Guy's heart player. Hey, I want to hear what you got. You were going around the whole room. It was awesome. It was so much was fun. Awesome. And, but, but then I'd think, oh, geez, we've been jamming for a long time. Maybe I should just get to the outro. And there was one time where, I knew that you were coming in with the B section on one of the songs. And I was like, oh, I just screwed Kenny up. And, you know, you've got your. That's all right. You know, I completely adapt. You do. I adapt. You do, man. But, do. But, but people don't see, like you say, the preparation that it takes to, to do what you do and to do what all the great musicians. I mean, you got to have the, the chops. You got to have the natural feel. But you also got to have a, an ethic. First of all, you got to be willing to be rejected mercilessly a million times and not let it destroy you. And then you got to be willing to, to work your ass off so that when you walk out on stage, you make it look easy. That's another part of the magic. You just nailed it there because I have a saying that goes, I'll never be as great as I want to be, but I'm willing. I'm willing to spend my entire life trying to be as great as I can be, which is exactly that. As soon as something doesn't go the way you want, I don't like to use the word mistakes anymore, failures. But if something doesn't go the way you want it, push it aside, keep thinking end zone, end zone, touchdown. Otherwise, as, as soon as you stop, it's like a math equation, zero equals zero. You, you stop, you're done. Right. 
You know who was brilliant like that in sports was Kobe Bryant. The guy was like ruthless at preparation and he made it look easy. But he was ruthless at preparation. And that's why he was so good. And I'm sure he blew a lot of baskets when he was younger. Yeah, he's out there at, at two o'clock in the afternoon, you know, shooting three pointers when the rest of the guys are, they haven't even woken up yet. He's already out. Yeah, exactly. All right, so, all right, this is a good one. I'm going to bring this up. So I, I read this thing where, like, this whole thing about Kevin Cronin was here in the Ozark episode. How did you end up on a Netflix, one of the best, coolest series, Ozark? Tell me about that. And, and that, I also read, that might have helped with record sales, it's kind of like reminded everybody, oh, Ario, you know? Yeah, I told him that I would agree to appear on the show, but only if they named the episode after me. No. <laughs> so so, oh, so we show great. up, I love it. you know, at the, the location, right? And I was the only one in the band that had any lines. I had a couple of lines. So they, they gave me a, a printout of just that scene, of the script of that scene. And at the top of each printed out page it says kevin cronin was here i mean they were so great to us i mean they welcomed us jason bateman comes down and lets his lunch get cold to come over and say hello so they hand me the script and i'm like wow they're just really rolling out the red carpet they're just really wanting me to feel comfortable here you know that's i thought it was just like a little inside joke so pandemic hits we're all home you know my wife three kids the kids are adults of course and we're all in the TV room on the sofa, ready to watch Ozark season three. And sure enough, episode three comes on and they actually did name the episode that I thought that was just, that was a, I was tickled, man. And I will say this, it doesn't happen often, but for a few minutes, maybe five minutes, my kids actually thought I was cool. <laughs> I love it. So, you know what I'm saying? Oh my Whatever God. it takes. Well, that, that's so cool that you didn't know it was going to be called that. You know, the Kevin Cronin was here. Kevin Cronin's here. You didn't know. So it's like, wow, I am cool. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> for a second. Yeah. Yeah, for a second. Yeah. Well, you know. You know, I lived in Indiana for 35 years. I went to school there and then the Mellencamp thing. And then I just stayed there. It's something about the Midwest. It's different. And you grew up there. I mean, don't you feel that that and, and also Chicago, of course, you grew up in the Chicago area, and there's so much music there. That must have had an influence on everything you did. I think so, man. I, I mean, I think growing up in the Midwest, you get that kind of, you know, that middle Americans, kind of a worth ethic. It's not super fancy. It's not super, you know, but being from Chicago, being from the biggest city in the Midwest, you get a little taste of a little sophistication, a little culture, you know, some theater some i mean the music in chicago i was kind of in the folk scene in chicago which was up in the near north side and there was a cool rock scene up there too there was plenty of venues and clubs to play once i got to the point that i could actually that i was actually like wow i think i can play these songs that i'm writing in front of people well there there were plenty of places in chicago from tiny little holes in the wall to where you really could learn what you were doing to bigger places so I think the combination of the, you know, the big city of Chicago and the small town Midwest vibe, it definitely informs Ario Speedwagon for sure. Because as you know, from, from your, your days with John, when you, when you're first starting out, 
there's a million little towns and there's a there's at least one bar with a stage and a sound system in every one of them so you could just go from town to town and kind of spread the word and then you know next time you came back there were more people there than there were last time you know type of thing it was very uh very simple but wait kenny what where are you originally from massachusetts i was born in albany new york but i spent most of my life well i mean i went from Albany to basically Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which is Western Mass in the hills of uh, Western Mass. It was a cool place. So two hours from Boston, three hours from New York. Gotcha. And then you end up in Bloomington, Indiana. Yeah, because I, I was at that point, I was studying classical music because there was no school of rock when I was a kid. So when my parents said, you know, we all went to college. So when they said, what do you want to major? And I went, well, music. And so I, I'd been studying with the percussionists from the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and the BSO had a summer program at Tanglewood, which was three miles from my house. And there was some kid in my little town of 3000 that was getting better, and he'd been taking lessons with this percussionist. I started taking lessons with that guy, and he kicked my butt and got me into timpani and mallets and reading. That's where I got my reading. And so I went to UMass, University of Massachusetts, for one year because I really wasn't that great. I wasn't in the marching band. I wasn't in the concert band. I had a rock band ever since I was 13. So why would I want to be in a marching band? So that wasn't cool. So I was in, I was in clubs picking up girls and playing rock and roll. So I started studying. And then in one year, I transferred to the number one school of music in the country for classical music, which was Indiana University. The long story, I get in there, spent four years there, got my ass kicked and worked my way to the top just by working hard. And eventually got into the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra and turned it down because I still wanted to be in a rock band. And so I just stayed there, formed a band. We didn't get signed. You know, it was the whole thing. You write songs, try to get signed. The business model is that. And then they, oh, they sign you. They say, here's some money. Make a record. You make a record, sell the record. Hey, you want to do that again? Sure. And you make a career. Well, we failed. And I was about to move to New York. And that's when I heard about this Johnny Cougar guy. Audition, get the gig. That was that. Interesting. People don't know about uh, about Indiana University in, in Bloomington. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful campus, and the you know it just got a it's got a vibe down there. I've really enjoyed myself every time I've been there. Oh yeah, how could you not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a party town, oh, man. Yeah. That was like, boy, and you know, oh my God. I mean, it's amazing we survived the eighties. You know, I always tell I you're probably like me. You know, the the eighties were the wildest times in rock and roll, but. For me, and I can tell from you too, the career became more important than all that wildness. You know, the career becomes the most important thing. You start going, wait a minute, I can't do both at the highest level. So I'm going to pick the career. Well, I will tell you that there was there was definitely a, a moment for our band where, I mean, Ariel was always known as a, a band that liked to have a good time. I mean, we, we started in the bars at the University of Illinois in Champaign, right? All the guys, you know, are just funny, cool, smart dudes. We always had fun. But right around 1982, we had the big 10 million seller in 1981. And in 1982, at this point, you know, we've got a, a security guy who's always carrying a, a, yeah. a briefcase. No one's quite sure what's in it. We would check into the hotel. He would check into the presidential suite and spend the day, you know, getting the stereo system in, changing all the light bulbs to call. So after the show, and we used to call it the dungeon. 
So after the show, I love everybody it. would retreat to the dungeon, you know, and, and, but it wasn't just on Saturdays, you know, it was <laughs> every show, you know how it is, no matter where you are, no matter what day of the week it is, when you come to town, everybody, you know, in that town for them, it's like party time, man, Ario's in town. Here we go. You know? And right around 1982, I remember starting to go, you know what? The party, the after party is starting to become more important than the actual show itself. And, you know, and I didn't like that. Now, I did not like it enough to stop doing it. But the thought occurred to me that our priorities have gotten out of whack, you know, and that's kind of when we turned a corner and, and started we didn't get as bad as as some bands, but we, you know, we uh, we definitely had our moments for sure. Well, come on, it's like okay, you sold ten million copies. You're young, the audience is young. I don't know about you, but when I was in Mellencamp '82, that's when we sold "American Fool" was number one record of the year. I mean, girls were throwing underwear and bras at us. Uh, everybody was young, and what do you do when you're young? You have wild fun, and like you said, when you're in a rock and roll band. I mean, in back in the eighties, people really, really looked up to you, and everybody wanted to get backstage. Everybody wanted to party with the band, and well, then well, come on, let's <laughs> of course. do it. I mean, <laughs> woo, you know. But that that's cool, you know. When that light bulb goes off, that's I think uh, I don't know where that comes from, but I, I remember asking a drummer who was famous for partying in a very famous band. I won't mention names, and I said, and he eventually had to become sober, and I said. So what was the thing that made you become, they said, dude, got to the point where it's like, I better stop or I'm going to, I'm going to lose my career. And he says, I don't want to lose my career. So yeah, that was, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm going to make a big switch here. What is this thing about Dolly Parton? What is that all? Did you do something with Dolly? Are you allowed to talk about that? <laughs> yeah. First of all, I freaking love Dolly. I mean. Me too. Yeah. Oh my I mean, God. How could you not? How could she's you not? hot. She's hot. She's, she's still hot. What blew my mind was that she's this iconic, she's, she's like this thing that you don't even realize that she's human. You know what I mean? She's like so, like her presence is so amazing. And then when you're working with her, working on a song or working on a record, it's just like you and me talking. It's just like she talks. She's just another musician, another songwriter who wants the record to sound good, wants the performance to be right, knows what she wants to hear, but is willing to listen to what you want to hear. And she, she's just, well, yeah. So it, it was, I think it must have been 1980. And I got word that she wanted to record one of my songs for her White Limousine album. And then I heard that she cut it. But I don't know about you, but for me, until the record is actually in the stores and i can see that my song is on it i'm like you know anything can happen right at the last minute because you know you, you make a record you, you record 15 songs and nine or ten of them make it on the record those other five songs those guys thought those songs were going to be on the record and guess what they weren't but it turned out that she recorded time for me to fly right and so i get a copy of the record i'm so excited this is like a huge moment put the record on and in my brain, which it wasn't computing, it sounded to me like someone took the turntable and turned it up to 78 RPM. But what had really happened is that Dolly had taken time for me to fly 
and turned it into a frickin' bluegrass hoedown, you know, with mandolin and banjo and fiddle. You know, I've been around for you, been up and down for you, but I just can't get in. You know, it was freaking awesome. I mean, I was so, I was just blown away. And the next time Dolly came through to the Universal Amphitheater on that tour, I sent her, uh, I don't know, at least three dozen white roses, like a big bouquet of white roses, just to let her know that I appreciated that. Because like, we didn't talk yet. I, we hadn't met. So anyway, years go by. And we were talking about Ozark. Time for me to fly. You're right. Time for me to fly. Like for a minute, there was like number one on the catalog chart. Are you ready for this? For like two weeks, I was the number one producer <laughs> in Billboard magazine. What? Just what? It's just because I was the producer of Time for Me to Fly, and it be, so it's like, all right, you know. <laughs> Did you get a Grammy? Did you get a I, you Grammy? You know, I should have gotten something, you know. And let's say the producer of the year is <laughs> Kevin Cronin. What? Did they get that wrong? Yeah, I, I was the great. producer of the day, I think maybe. So we thought that maybe Dolly would want to do the song again with a different a different vibe and so so joe vanelli and i went in the studio you know joe the maestro vanelli and yeah so we went in and did this version of time for me to fly sent it to dolly there was no project attached to it no nothing it was just here's a demo of this song you sang it a long time ago here it is and about a month went by and we didn't hear back anything and i, I wasn't really expecting anything all of a sudden we get a call from Dolly. She goes, sorry, it took me so long. I love this. You'll have my vocal, you know, by the end of the week or something. Whoa. This is Dolly Parton. And, you know, it'd be one thing if, if, if I was like, well, this is going to be the title track on this new, you know, David Lynch movie or, you know what I mean? The, but there was nothing. It was just, this is my demo of this song. We're not sure what we're going to do with it. And she goes in the studio and freaking does a vocal. I mean, Kenny, that blew my mind. I, I was like, that is like the coolest thing ever, right? So about a year goes by and, you know, she gets an, inducted into the Hall, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, has second thoughts about it, decides that if she's going to accept the invitation, she's going to make a rock album. So her and I uh, duet on Keep On Loving You. Wow. And like I say, I'm not counting my chickens, you know, because they right, hatch right, right. but. It's looking, look, but did, did you hear the lineup she has of, of guest artists for this album? No. They put it out to like everybody and their grandmother, probably expecting to get, you know, a certain number of responses. Everybody responded. Of course. This, of course. Of course. But, but, but she, she wasn't expecting it because she's wow. Dolly and she's so freaking cool, you know? Oh, she's so cool. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, I did the TV show. The Brickstone Arena there in Nashville honoring Kenny Rogers. And of course, they were very close. It was his farewell concert. And oh my God, she was there the whole time, all the rehearsals. It was unbelievable. Yeah, she's the real deal. So, Kevin, is there anything that you haven't done yet in your life that you're going, hmm, I want to do that? Is that like, or is it like, I'm just want to rock until I drop? Well, I will tell you that. I heard the first Crosby, Stills and Nash record when it came out. The, the day it came out, I was expecting it. I went to the record store, brought it home to my girlfriend's house, put it on, played Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. It 
absolutely, I couldn't believe what I had just heard. You know, since the Beatles, I literally picked up the needle 12 times before I got to Marrakesh Express. I mean, it was just, I know. And I love all of them. I love David, love Graham, but Stephen Stills kind of, he was the one who, his music just spoke to me. And I just became a, a fan of his. And I knew him a little bit from Buffalo Springfield. But anyway, so I somehow through, you know, I'm finishing my book eventually. And I, I tell the whole story of my, of my saga yeah. with Stephen. It's too long to even, it would take a whole podcast. But, yeah. but I end it. One thing led to another. I ended up writing a song with him that ends up on two Crosby, Stills, and Nash records. So now I think, okay, my bucket list of Stephen Stills is complete. Well, then I get the call that you set up for me to be part of that, of the band with with the Jim Mersey collection and Stephen Stills. So it was all you guys, this this amazing band, plus Billy Gibbons, Vince Gill, myself, and Stephen Stills. And I hadn't seen Stephen in a long time. You know, he's a character, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But just one of the most, I mean, I'm sorry. He's one of the most underrated on electric guitar, acoustic guitar. His songs, I mean, when you look at a list of his songs, you can't even believe it, you know, and and his voice. I mean, that that I mean, his first solo album was just crazy. So anyway, the end of that bucket list was on that gig with you. When I got to sing the duet in tribute to David Crosby, David had just passed away a few weeks earlier, and I got to sing Almost Cut My Hair, a duet with Stephen Stills. That was a moment, for sure. Well, I'm so glad that I had something to do with facilitating that that's a... It wouldn't happen without you, man. It wouldn't, I mean, well, and if you and I wouldn't have met a couple of weeks earlier for another charity show, you know, so you just never know. We're just getting started. We're just getting started. I promise you that. Let me just t- say quick, because people don't know, people who know Kenny, when the original REO drummer, Alan Gratzer, retired back in like the late 80s, 87, you and I had never met, but the first person I called just instinct, like I knew you'd be working. I thought you, you were probably still with John Mellencamp, but I didn't care. I called just to put the question and you were so cool. You were like, oh man, I... I really love to do it, but, and I can't remember what you were doing at the time, but I just remember that you were, you turned down the gig in the nicest, most respectful possible way. So I, I'm just waiting for the moment when, when you and I would connect. It took a while, but hey. What an honor. Hey, don't feel bad. I actually turned down an Elton John tour and I turned down a Mick Jagger tour because, and record because he kept changing the dates. And I turned down I had all kinds of wacky things because I was already committed and, but that's such an honor. God. Okay. Of these three things, which things are the most important to you think right now? Money, time, or magic? Money, time, or magic? Somebody asked me that once and I was like, huh? Wow. And I, I finally came up. It's tricky. Money, time, or magic? Well, I mean, it's easy to eliminate money, but that's only because, you know, I've been so lucky and so fortunate that enough people have found a place in their heart for my music and they're willing to buy tickets to our shows and they're willing to buy albums and, and whatever. So between magic and what was the other one? Time. Oh, time. Oh, gee. Well, I mean, I feel like you can combine time and magic. If you make the most of your time and always make time for magic, 
when it happens in any way. I mean, I'm talking about the kind of magic where you're busy and there's things you need to do. And one of your kids walks in the room and wants to play a song from a new band that he just heard. And it's like, geez, I kind of really need to do this thing that, that I'm doing. But wait a minute. No, there's, there's magic there connecting to one of your children. You know, so there it's the time and the magic. I, I mean, to me, I guess when those two things intersect, I don't know what's more important. I, I don't think I could choose. Where'd you go with it? Well, that was a tough one. I ended up picking money because I thought, well, if I make more money, then I can create more time. So let's say you make a certain amount of money in a week. And all of a sudden I triple that. Then I could say, well, then I don't have to work on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I can decide what to do with that time. And the magic, I thought I have plenty of magic because I already am playing so much music. Every day is magical for me because it's, I'm already doing that. That was one way of looking at it. But, you know, you could also then fill those days up. Well, you, the whole point is you're buying time with money. So that's how I did it. I got gotcha. you. That particular, when that question was asked to me, that's Interesting. how I did it. It's really, it's a tough one. Yeah. I was really confused for a while. Like, so I just thought I'd share that with you. Well, Kevin, man, I don't want to take up more of your time, but man, this was phenomenal doing this with you. I mean, we're almost the same age. We've been through this most incredible, Incredible, probably the greatest time in rock and roll. We got in right at the beginning and we're still doing it. And so it's like, I feel like I'm being able to share this with you. It's like we both went on a journey in life together without standing next to each other. And we can uh, relate so much. So thank you for doing this with me, Joe. Oh man, it's been, it's been a pleasure, Kenny. Anytime I get to spend hanging with you is, is magic. And I'm looking forward to, I mean, we're just a couple of, couple of weeks away from another gig from you know and so, yep and there's going to be more yeah is there an actual name for that band it might be jim Mercy collection band i can't remember it's gone back and forth and i can't remember what they settled on okay oh, yeah i can't but uh that's gonna be i think we need a name that's gonna be great that's in boston we got other ones and your name keeps coming up because you made like i said you know you're such a likable guy and jim loves you and your songs and and you just get along with everybody. Who wouldn't want you there all the time? You know, Jim is a trip, man. We kind of connected, you know, because I was hanging out on the side of the stage watching all the other artists. You know, I watched the whole show. I mean, watching Vince Gill walks up. He's a big dude, right? And he walks up, he opens his mouth and you just go, wait a minute. How did that sound come out of any human being? I know. That I, guy, you know, and he's just <laughs> the sweetest guy ever, you know, and uh yeah. But Jim has been like, I get texts, just just wacky texts from him all the time, right? Just uh, you, you too. Too. yeah. I, I figure there, there's probably a there's probably a, a thread there that that he yeah. There's a thread. Yeah. yeah. So that is fun. so cool. Yeah, you'll get it at the craziest time at night, and it's you know it's good though. He lo he loves music. I've known him for thirty five years. Aha. And obviously, owner of the Indianapolis Colts, but music really is his. I'd say music is his number one love, but you know, he inherited the cult. His dad owned the team. So, all right. Well, Kev, man, I won't take up any more of your time. You rock. Thanks for doing this, man. All right, Kenny. 